welcome to Tell Me Your Story, the Myth of Sophia series, exploring the depths of myth and wisdom. I'm Richard Dugan, along with my co-host, Will Lynn, and it's good to have you back in studio again. And Great we actually have a studio guest today, and mm-hmm. I'm very excited about that. Uh, but this is post-PhD. You are now a doctor. That's I right. Haven't been you, back sir. since then, huh? <laughs> I, I bow to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. This is uh, an exciting program that we're going to be talking about. And why don't you take us into the uh, the depths uh, of the of the content as far as where we're going on this particular journey of Mythosophia? Great. So uh, let me start by introducing John Colarusso here, who's, who is a uh, professor at McMaster's University in Toronto, Canada. Uh, he's also the author of, of two books that I'm particularly compelled by called uh, The Nart Sagas and uh, Tales of the Narts, or Nart Tales. Um, Tales of the Narts, sorry. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> and so John is a uh, comparative linguist, a very advanced comparative linguist, a senior member of the International Association for, Com- for Comparative Mythology. Uh, and um, what we were looking to talk with John about today uh, are two things. One, the Nart sagas, what they, what they are, what they're about, why they're important. And more generally also about comparative mythology, comparative linguistics, and, uh, and, and what uh, he has from his experience and expertise to bring to us uh, in, in more general conversation. Well, what I'm hoping, too, is to, to, to better understand that whole comparative aspect, especially when I've talked with many of our guests in the past, when it, we discuss language, when we especially the written word, and when you get stories, whether they be biblical stories or they be fairy tales or what have you, uh, and they're written original language was not English, it was something else. Mm-hmm. And then it's translated. And mm-hmm. as the phrase goes, so much is lost in translation. And how do we get that back is is one of the biggest concerns on my uh, on my plate sometimes. Because there's so much richness and it's like, boy, if only we had been taught this language in school mm-hmm. and I envy, I, I know this one gal, she's, a, um, I think pre-college, but she's from Italy. She's a foreign exchange student here in Santa Barbara. She knows five languages. How many languages do you speak, John? <laughs> uh, just right now, one. <laughs> they, go, they go dormant. If, if you don't use them, that your brain puts them in storage. Hmm. And uh, my wife has kept count, I think, 17 Wow. Something like that. But wow. I, I have a friend that speaks over 50, so I'm a very modest polyglot. And I'm curious <laughs> as to how, how his brain with 50 languages is functioning to keep track of what he's saying in each of those languages. I mean, the meanings have to change. And the only the best example I can come up with, and I, I was uh, um, married to a woman whose family was, uh, their, their history was Slavonic. Yeah. And... Uh, Uh, I was told that, for example, in that language, uh, there was no word for washing machine. There was only the word machine. And so you had all of these different machines, but they were all different, but you only had the one word to describe them. (laughs) Whereas we have all of those different words. Well, it's actually one thing I want to ask John about is uh, so sometimes we, we start to find these words. That start to appear. Uh, they, they seem to appear for the first time with an invention in a in a, in a uh, group, and then that word seems to uh, be seems to travel to other languages. Because yeah. so, I was wondering, John, could you maybe talk about uh, uh, words and and how they travel? All right. Well, uh, one finds similar words across a wide range of languages. It's not hard. Um, in fact, it's fairly easy to mount a mathematical argument that between any two languages, you'll, you'll find 3 or 4% uh, of the words that not only have the similar meaning, if not the same meaning, but very similar shapes. Hmm. And that's by sheer chance. I and mean, there's a certain residue of that you have to contend with. Um, 
Others uh, are borrowed. Um, probably the best example is the word for cat, hmm. which is sort of cat, kato, something like this, <laughs> from China through ancient Egypt up, up into, you know, Ireland, for, for goodness sakes. Um, and that goes with the animal. And then there's another one, perhaps a more interesting one, and that is that the language uh, is actually related to another language and that these two words are evidence of that. And these two words are like family heirlooms that have come down from some kind of remote ancestor. Uh, so there was orig- an original what we call proto-community. And as it differentiated through time, the people drifted apart, lost contact, f- reformed an identity of a new sort. And the original identity and kinship bond was probably forgotten. Hmm. And we can only retrieve it. We can go actually go back in time with the comparative method and retrieve lost worlds, lost belief systems, lost languages, and even try to locate these in, in certain zones, certain places. Can you give maybe an example uh, of some of the stuff that people are working to reconstruct or have reconstructed, or maybe some one of your favorite uh, reconstructions? Oh, well, uh, I work on some languages from the Caucasus, uh, around Sochi and, and north of Sochi. You, you saw those beautiful mountains in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is uh, the homeland of a particular language family that included uh, a language called Circassian, uh, a language called Abkhaz, and you may have heard of that from the Georgian Abkhaz War of 20 years ago or so, and a language that's now almost extinct called Ubuk. And uh, very complex languages, very complex sound systems and whatnot. Um, so I was looking at those, and uh, uh, then I was looking at another group, another language, mother language, we call them mother tongues or mother languages, from which See, Germanic languages are derived, Slavonic or Slavic languages, languages of India and Iran, uh, Celtic languages, uh, Germ- I think, think it's uh, uh, Greek, uh, Latin, and this is called Proto-Indo-European. Well, so we know about the Latin language, and everybody talks about Latin as this core language that unites so many Europeans. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, f- let me just finish one thought. Yeah, I want you uh, to take it to the next uh, level the, with the, the Indo-European. The Indo-European thing, all right, so the yeah. word fire... And, and foyer in German, it was obviously similar words. Then we compare those to, to pyro or, or pure in Greek, pyromaniac. We get P, mm-hmm. P-U-R in Greek. And um, we can reconstruct an ancient language uh, form, a proto-form for Proto-Indo-European. And it comes out of something like pachur. Very strange, with a hu in the middle. And we find that in a language now dead, long lost, called Hittite, which was also related to Greek and Latin and, and uh, English and so forth. Uh, and it turns out that if you look at the Circassian, Ubuch, and Abkhaz form, you can explain the Indo-European form. Pa in those is down, hu is to fall, and it's only used for fire that is ignited by lightning descending from the sky. Mm. And the Pachor of Indo-European was also only used for sacred fire, for, for ritual fires. And so these two words, they may be borrowings, but there's also the possibility that we're looking at some very ancient links that uh, link uh, the mother, mother tongue of so many languages of Eurasia, Europe, and, and Iran, India, uh, with uh, a small little bunch in the Caucasus. And the latest thing is that the geneticists have said, yes, this is where Indo-European began. It's the genes match up. So in my own work, about 20 years ago, I argued for this. It wasn't widely accepted. I've been vindicated by the, <laughs> by the geneticists. Well, now, I have had the opportunity of talking with some people from, from the Middle East in particular. We actually did a program not only with um, 
Zaman, yeah. With Zaman. Mm-hmm. But I had somebody else in studio, and I was asking them about uh, the various translations into English of certain phrases that we have heard. Mm-hmm. And so I, I gathered that information, and then I spoke with someone else mm-hmm. who was supposedly very knowledgeable, a linguist of, of, the, uh, of the languages of the Middle East. I don't want to say the Arab languages because that's specific and there's so many differences. Right. And they said, well, that's not necessarily true. It could be. So now you run into not only (laughs) the, the, the historical evidence, if you will, but now you run into the personality, the uh, ego-based position people take on the translation of words. Do you ever find that, uh, John? You you have to to live with it. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's part of the background noise of the profession. Yeah. And uh, eventually, if you're lucky and you're careful and you work hard, uh, I think, uh, and you have the right ideas, uh, you will sort of emerge somehow from from the the hubbub like this and uh, people listen a little more carefully to what (laughs) you have to say. But generally, we we have a range of opinions and it's a democratic pursuit and... Um, not much we can do to standardize it. And maybe that's not healthy. Maybe it's healthy to have a range of opinions. And it's possible that in your two informants, the two people you spoke with, mm-hmm. that their own experiences with those languages, and languages yeah. are very rich, very flexible, their own experiences were different in those different languages, or the same languages, yeah. and, and they brought that away. They brought that differences away. And I'm always trying to, to understand. I, for example, I always want to make sure that I pronounce someone's name correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, because my, to mine me, means Santa Claus. You're, oh, really? Seriously? Really? Yeah, yeah, Red Nicholas. <laughs> well, welcome, Santa. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Cola is short can you for feel it? I, I can yeah. feel it. I can feel yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Looks like a real beard to me. But <laughs> I, was, I was interviewing a gentleman back yeah. 25, 30 years ago. He had written a book called The Apocalypse Conspiracy. He's a born-again Christian, and he's trying to show how, you know, the, the, the uh, Christian uh, Christianity has been taken down the primrose path, and he's trying to show them how the, the language, they're not reading the language properly, they're not going back to the original words. And I'm reading his book, and great to read his book, but I didn't want to be quoting him. I wanted to have the information. So I pulled Mm -hmm. out my Bible and I pulled out my Strong's Concordance, which I accept as a valid source of information. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's not, then I should throw the darn big old thing out and I don't know where I'm going to get my my translation information. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he quoted this one passage from the New Testament and there was the one word in it that that was the pivotal word was the word air, A-I-R. So I went to the concordance in the New, New Testament portion of the concordance, and there are two definitions of the word air that are used in that context, but there only one of them is actually used in that passage. And when you, and so I'm sharing this, and I'm sharing this with someone, and they say, well, yeah, but that was, that was, that was the <laughs> Greek translation. And it's like, ah, well, no, wait a minute. Yeah, no, no, no. It wasn't Greek. This was the Aramaic. They're, they're, they're going back as far as they can. So either, again, our source material, our primary source material to define things is valid or it's not. Yeah, and, and that's, but that's, that's a, the thing is that primary source material, we want to treat it as primary sources. But you're talking to one of the people that creates those primary sources, which is one of those odd things where yeah. uh, we've talked, I've talked with John about... Uh, so when people create, when, when somebody translates, say, an old Sumerian text, we treat it as a primary source, that translation. Mm-hmm. But, but, John, how, how uh, perfect do you think those translations are? Well, I have a few friends who are Sumerologists, as they call themselves. And I would, it depends on the practitioner, but their confidence ranges. 
they're pretty confident about half the vocabulary. They really seem to know what half mm -hmm. of it means. It's an isolated language. It's not like any other language, so they can't compare it and, and mm. try this sort of standard uh, tools that, you know, try to pin, pin down a, a meaning. And I would say the other, uh, the other half is guesswork. And at best, maybe 25% is guesswork. So I guess the point uh, is treating primary sources like primary sources is inherently risky. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, th that's 5,000 years old, that stuff. We can go back to, say, the Shah Nameh, the great epic of Iran by Firdosi. It was written in 1100. Uh, and Firdosi tried his very best to, to reestablish Iranian words and replace Arabic words. And we go through that book. Uh, I studied Farsi, uh, per Persian when I was at Harvard. And... I, I can't give you a statistical number, but there are many, many words in that that no one has any idea what they mean. Not a single idea. Yeah. Even the Iranian native speakers, very great scholars and everything, these are lost words. And we're guessing from context, which is what you normally do as a child or even as an adult trying to learn a new word. You can guess from what it might mean given its use. So that's the best they can do. Yeah. But the confidence is not 100%. Now, this may be a little off the track here, but... As a linguist, maybe you maybe you've studied this or are you aware of this? Uh, for example, the Sanskrit language. Mm. Uh, there is a Swami who lives here in Montecito, and he travels back to India regularly. But there's also a school that he's connected with in England, and they teach the children Sanskrit, not for the purposes of using it in day to day life, but for the purposes of altering the synapses and the brain pathways. Mm. Do you are you aware of other languages that may do the same have the same kind of an effect? And again, we're talking about ancient languages here. Well, Sanskrit is still spoken by monks, and mm -hmm. I've heard it spoken on a daily basis, just for you know, like, let's have lunch in Sanskrit, things like that. <laughs> uh, but the the general theory now is that to learn a second uh, language is to enhance the functioning and structure of the cortex. Um, we now, there's some evidence that if you grow up speaking more than one language, you have three speech areas instead of the regular two. Mm -hmm. Oh. Uh, and uh -huh. the, the two are Wernicke's where you comprehend language, and that's the easier one. Learning a language is easy to begin mm -hmm. to comprehend it. Producing it's always harder, and that's in a different area mm -hmm. farther forward in the cortex called Broca's Broca's area. area, right. But somehow, being multilingual, you have a third one in between somewhere. And I've only seen one neurological scan of a polyglot. The results showed a lattice-like structure between those two areas, and they dismissed it as an artifact of the scan. It did not look biological. It was so weird-looking. Uh, when I'm in a different language, uh, you ask how you keep these apart. Yeah. You go into It's a different world, different feelings, different associations, um, different sensibilities, and you go into that other world, and you're in that other world. And then you shift out. Now, there are people who do simultaneous translation, and they find it extraordinarily stressful to jump hmm. back and forth like that between those worlds. And pr most professionals can't do that for more than about 45 minutes or so. They have to have a break. Yeah. Um, I can only imagine what the UN translators yeah, so this is, oh, yeah, yeah. That's their standard. Gosh. They're given time off after an hour or something like wow. that. They have to take a break. That's really interesting what you're saying. So, so I'm curious, uh, does, does that third part of the brain uh, ever end up in the right hemisphere for, for polyglots? Well, apparently something like 7 or 8% of the population has their speech areas in the right hemisphere. The rest have it normally in the right. left hemisphere. Right, right. Uh, when you answer the phone, 
which uh, ear do you put through your, your, your cell phone to? I can put the right ear a lot of right times. Right ear. So it's, it's, on the left, it's on the left side because yeah. it crosses over, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> I always put mine in the left ear. And I suspect that my areas, for some weird reason, are on the right side. Well, I know uh, that uh, one thing that the uh, reason I'm asking is because what happens with dyslexics is dyslexics struggle to use the Broca's area of their brain. Mm-hmm. And so they start trying to compensate. Mm-hmm. And most of them fail because they try and compensate in the left hemisphere. But very few actually start compensating with the right hemisphere. And these are the ones who start to develop abilities to say things that other people find ineffable. Yeah. Because they literally, I, yeah. Well, and I struggle that, with that. My wife uh, is dyslexic. And, and uh, we will be talking. And she she will ask me, uh, I, matter of fact, case in point, I went to, uh, she said, as we're getting ready to leave for work one morning, she's, uh, you're going to have to go back in the house. I got to unlock the door, go da da da. And I left my water bottle on the table. So I go back into the house. Mm-hmm. There is no water bottle on the table. Okay. So now I've got to broaden my definition of table. <laughs> it turns out it was on the sink on the countertop we were of the about sink. This earlier, actually. Yeah, this is shallow, shallow dyslexia. It's called uh, meanings organize themselves into natural groupings of a sort. They, yeah. They're sort of composed of more compo- more profound component parts of sense and all. And so, a person with shallow dyslexia, which is the normal kind. Uh, they can sort of talk about a flat surface or a piece of furniture or something, but they can't quite get the right one. Yeah. They're in the right semantic field, but they can't navigate within the field too well. Yeah. Uh, there's a thing called deep dyslexia, which is almost a case, a case of becoming mute, where you can't even get to the field properly, mm. and that's usually due to severe brain damage. But dyslexics, say shallow dyslexics, are often extremely bright and have very strong visual sense and visual uh, thinking, mm-hmm. um, or even perhaps mathematical thinking, uh, where you, you're sort of doing what language does, but you're not pronouncing anything. It's just sort of images of symbols mm. and stuff like that. Well, the lesson here is mm. I do not get her to be more precise because that's not going to happen. No, they can't. They can't they <laughs> I have can't. to broaden my definition of whatever word that she's using. Is your wife a redhead? Uh, well, she, yes. Mm-hmm. She is. Okay, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Why okay. do you ask? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is fascinating. And I, when we come back from our break, uh, we'll dive. I would love to have us dive into these mm-hmm. stories, yeah, uh, these of other languages. And again, using what we've just talked about as far as language, and then translating these stories from the original languages into, in our case, English, so that we not only hear the story, but we hear the meaning behind the story we actually see the images that were intended to be portrayed in our minds by the original storytellers in those languages if we can talk about that when we come back be happy to great i'm richard dugan and we are here with uh uh with uh, professor john and it's i know I'm, i was almost going to say santa claus colorusso 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 oh, like <laughs> john colorusso and will lynn i'm richard dugan this is uh, tell me your story myth of sophia exploring the depths of myth and wisdom we'll be right back
to uh, Tell Me Your Story, Myth of Sophia, exploring the depths of myth and wisdom. Exciting program we're into today. I certainly think so. Uh, do we have, a, Will, a website people can go to to get more information uh, about not only today's subject, but maybe even also about other programs that we've done, especially yeah. the 12-part series we did in 2014? Yeah, you can find all of uh, all of Richard and I's uh, interviews with, with mythological, mythological scholars and storytellers at mythosophia.com, which is M-Y-T-H-O-S-O-P-H-I-A.com, and you'll be able to find this uh, interview there as well. And you'll also find that link on mm-hmm. richarddugan.com, the homepage, actually on every page. It's <laughs> in the template, so it's uh, it's it's reproduced there. Uh, and it's just, again, uh, I mean, we have been associated, what, for, what, five years? It's been a while, yeah. At least five? Since that first time with Elizabeth. Uh, Talking on, about yeah. the Holy Grail? Yeah, yeah. Now On Easter. <laughs> on, on Easter, that's right, <laughs> mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. right. Now, that story in particular, mm-hmm. that Ooh, was... That's a, a real segue, by the way. That <laughs> was told... Probably originally in, at the very least, mm-hmm. old English, mm-hmm. right? This is you're 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 tapping into a really interesting vein here. In fact, the first reason why I reached out to John, the first mm-hmm. thing we connected over was actually the uh, the Narts and uh, and the Holy Grail. Yeah. Uh, so um, the the original stories do appear in, in uh, I think it's old English. Or, uh, I'm not exactly sure what um, uh, 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 what's his name, Jeffrey of Monmouth. Mm-hmm. Was he writing in old English? Middle English? <sighs> Putting you on the spot mid, here. Middle, <laughs> middle English, okay. Middle, so uh, Jeffrey of Monmouth and Wace, uh, these early stories, um, which are, which are you know, less than uh, about a thousand years old, kind of uh, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, but these stories came around at a time when, when Europe was Christianizing. Right. Right. And before that, uh, you had uh, the Roman, uh, Roman Europe. But during the period between Roman Europe and the Christianization of European Europe, uh, you had a, a lot of other things going on, including uh, the Visigoths who conquered uh, Rome, bringing in what they studied, right? No, what, they, or what they believed in. Well, then you have all the mixture of all the other things, all the other cultures that Rome has brought in and conquered and, and this kind of thing. And so what led me to eventually talking with John is a very interesting story. There is uh, the Romans. When the Romans uh, conquered a people, they, they tended to use mercenaries, just like the United States does. We mm-hmm. love our mercenaries, mm-hmm. right? And so our mercena- their mercenaries, when they uh, would successfully conquer a place, the, the uh, Romans would sometimes put some of these mercenaries into power as nobles. Mm-hmm. And when Rome fell, the most Roman nobles were the ones that, most, that got most ousted, uh, yeah. the quickest to go. Yeah. And the least Roman nobles uh, held, their, held their power the best. And uh, those Alans, certain, a certain set of mercenaries that came from uh, uh, just north of the Black Sea and a little bit further east in the Caucasus Mountains, uh, the, an area that, that John is an expert in, uh, these people uh, were some of the most successful mercenaries for Rome. And these people... Um, after the fall of Rome, seemed to retain a whole lot of their power. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't want to take, uh, I want to let ask John this question and let him talk about it, um, because one of the main theories here is that, one of the main pieces of evidence is that they brought armor, they brought chain mail. And so we go into uh, Europe and into uh, uh, the Dark Ages looking like Romans, and then Europe comes out looking like Iranians. Could you maybe say a little bit about that? And then I promise we're coming back to why, why and what this has to do with the Holy Grail. Right, exactly. Well, we have uh, archaeological finds from Central Asia of um, metal plates, uh, some gold, some uh, bra- brass, bronze, that show men jousting 
uh, and fighting in chain mail with uh, broadswords, things that look like broadswords. Are those are those from England? Maybe they got down no. there in some art. These are a thousand <laughs> years. These are a thousand years older than the, the, the birth of Christ. These are, are jousting, chainmail, chainmail, trousers. Uh, these, these are, are basically two thousand years older than what we see, or, or fifteen hundred years older than what we see uh, in Europe, and they're out in Kaz- what's now Kazakhstan, places like that. So this was a style of warfare, uh, sort of like modern precision <laughs> weapons, uh, something like this. And it was invented there, and then it spread out. Or actually, the people that that practiced it, invented it, brought it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to have to define some one element here: chainmail. Chainmail. What specifically is that? I know what armor is. I know what a right. Broad so sword you know, is. beneath beneath the heavy armor, the plates, they wear that. Uh, oh, the a, weaved. The weaved mail. Metal. Yeah. Ah, that's the, like cha- mithril. Gotcha. That, uh, okay. that uh, of course that Frodo wears. Gotcha. Uh, and okay. Bilbo. So so the chainmail, and so while we're on this point. What are some of the other elements that, that these uh, c- the, this people who told the stories of the Narts brought into Western culture? Well, there are several things. Uh, first of all, they were nomads, and they were horseback riding nomads uh, as opposed to being in chariots or something like that. So they invented trousers, and uh, the trousers uh, helped keep your legs from being chapped. Cha- so they're the reason we wear chafed. pants. Yeah, and that's why we wear pants. Uh, they w- invented boots oh. because if you're, run- if you're riding through brush— Oh, yeah. If you have sandals, you're going to get your toes broken. And uh, so they invented boots. Kind of like the original cowboys here. Yeah, well, the closest... Drive and steer, too, huh? Well, the closest thing is is the gi of karate practice. Hmm. And the only difference there is... Oh. Parent, I can't remember exactly what the gi folds one way. And as far as we can tell from depictions... Um, the uh, the original clothing these people were folded the other way. Huh. For some wow. Reason. So they look, um, oh, well, so the karate gi, I was recently watching Star Wars and realizing that Luke is basically, in the early movies, basically wearing a karate gi. He's wearing karate gi, hmm. yeah. Uh, and they brought in, they brought in flags. Um, so if you look at the uh, Romans, they ran, ran around with this pole and all these sort of weird emblems on them. Uh, even as late as Chinggis Khan, the Mongols rode, rode around with these poles and these emblems. But the nomads, the Indo-European speaking, and we think they spoke Iranian languages, and I don't mean Persian, but... Uh, Indo-European, right? Indo-European. Uh, they took advantage of the winds that blew constantly across the Central Asian steppes or, or prairies. And uh, they naturally resorted to uh, pennants uh, and flags and apparently even things like wind socks. Hmm. Uh, and they brought these in. And we hmm. have tombstones showing people wearing these outfits, riding with a flag behind them at Hadrian's Wall. And so we know, and we know from history. So these were mercenaries, mercenaries fighting Roman. for the Romans, for the Romans to yeah. defend Hadrian's Wall. That's right. And so this is, if you see the movie King Arthur, mm-hmm. you'll actually find this represented in, in the movie. And uh, interesting uh, scholar supported that movie, Linda, Linda Malcor, who is one of the co-authors with Scott Littleton of the book that lays out this theory that heavily relies on John's translations. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if you look at old uh, Irish material, old Welsh material, uh, and then even the, the uh, early uh, Middle English stuff from Wace and Leomon regarding Arthur and whatnot, you have a fairly coherent picture. Uh, it's clear with Wace and Leomon that you're getting a new cast of characters, right? But when you get the canonical King Arthur, which is sort of shaped by, by Mallory's work, Le Motateur, um, something's happened. Some big injection of something has been brought into that tradition that's fundamentally reshaped that tradition. Uh, so all your, uh, there's only a handful of Celtic characters that carry forward from the traditional older material. And we have a whole new cast, a whole new set of themes and whatnot. I mean, one of them is Guinevere. 
that she's brought forward. Okay, um, uh, the rest, uh, well, Sir Kai. Uh, Kai is an Iranian name. Uh, hmm. uh, comes always oh, goes all the way back to the um, Bharata Rig Veda. So you're Kai talking Uf- about Uf- the character that us uh, less sophisticated individuals might know as K. 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 Right. Or Kai. <laughs> K. Usually it's spelled with a K. K. A. Y. I'm sure in the English it was originally C. A. Y. Hmm. Um, uh, so the question is, who brought in what? And um, the best guess is that these were some kind of Nart sagas, old Nart sagas that were brought in. And if I may share the, uh, the primary myth that Scott, Littleton, and Linda uh, pointed to as the kind of clincher. Uh, and it's a story of, of, of uh, uh, King Arthur. And I'll, how about this? I'll tell the Arthur version and then ask you to tell the, uh, the other. So King Arthur, uh, when he's dying at the Battle of Baden, killed by uh, Mordred, He's laying there wounded, and he asks his attendant, Bedivere, to take his sword and throw it in, into the water. And so he asks Bedivere to throw it, and then Bedivere says, okay, and then he goes, and he comes back. He couldn't do it. It's, it's Excalibur. How can, you, I, can I, how can I throw Excalibur into the water? And so uh, he fakes it, and he comes back, and then he says, you know, okay, King Arthur says, well, what did you see? Uh, well, it's splash. You know. And then basically what happens is he fakes it twice, and then finally throws it in after, after faking it. And uh, there's another story of uh, uh, Batras. Maybe, yeah, but maybe Rod, share yeah. that one. This is an Ossetian story. The Ossetians are a relic population that still speaks the uh, Steppe Iranian uh, language. Um, and in that, in that um, uh, tradition, the, this hero is called Batrads. And uh, he gets weary of life. He, he is uh, wild. He is very uh, impulsive. Even God himself has no control over Batraz. He's like, I didn't make that guy. (laughs) No, only Batraz can choose his own death. And he decides to die, and he climbs onto a funeral pyre. Like Hercules? Yep, very much so, exactly. And he asks the Narch to to pump up with the billows and make it hot. And he starts dancing, a death dance. And he turns red hot while he's dancing. And then he says, take my sword and throw it in the Black Sea. And they don't want to do it. It's too heavy, too big, too hot, and so forth. Eventually like Bedivere, uh, whose name, by the way, in Celtic means the one who knows the grave. So he knew where Garthur mm. was. Uh, um, they throw it into the Black Sea, and the Black Sea erupts, and uh, huge waves of water turns blood red, and its steam rises, and, and you know, lightning and all this sort of stuff. And Batrads dies, but sort of floats up into the sky, into the clouds, where he's said to live normally. It's kind of like Arthur going on to yeah. the other aisle. Now, even a friend of mine, uh, Vic Mayer, uh, a sinologist at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, found a very similar uh, folktale in western China, in the Uyghur area, hmm. and that was originally um, Xinjiang. That was originally an Indo-European-speaking area where they spoke a language ah. called Tokharian, also some Iranian languages there, too. And so he came up with a folktale um, about 10 years ago uh, where the same thing happens. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, so one, end of, one end of Eurasia to the other. And there, so there are a couple others like this that are pretty compelling, too. You had just started talking about Guinevere, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, while... So Guinevere, uh, Arthur, uh, goes on quest and has to retrieve Guinevere from some distant distant land, some mysterious mm-hmm. land. And, and some of the stories get increasingly fairy story-like when, when, these, when this happens. And this is something uh, similar uh, in a, a leading, uh, I don't know if you call him a king figure, but a leading uh, patriarch uh, in, the, in the Nart sagas also goes on quest to some other land beneath the waves. Um, maybe you could tell us a little of that one. Well, there, there are two quests. One uh, where uh, someone goes beneath the waves for a water woman, uh, who's also has the form of a dove, uh, and the offspring of that union is, is are these divine twins, so to speak, or twins. Um, but I think the one that's closer to, to Guinevere and, and Arthur is the, the one in which Wazamig, 
Orishnag in, in, in uh, Ossidian, Warasmeg, meaning the son of the wild boar. Whatever <laughs> hmm. um, <laughs> the image that evoked. Uh, uh, hmm. Wants this woman. She scorns him. And they say, okay, we're going to steal her. And she's not in Nartland. She's somewhere else. And she's in a city in Circassian called Rund Rund. And the Circassian uh, folk artists, bards, and all still represent this, will carve an image of Rund Rund on a slab of wood. They carve a labyrinth. And so obviously there's some kind of common source here with the Greek labyrinth uh, and the Minotaur and all that kind of thing. What's the woman's um, name? The woman is Satanaya. And her, what's her name? And mean? the name means the mother of 100. Wow. Or the one who is the, mo- the mother of 100. And uh, she is the mother of the war band. Hmm. And the war band is exactly 100 fighters, 100 warriors that have the, what we call, in anthropology we call fictive or fictional, make-believe, bond of brotherhood. They, they think they're actually all brothers in some way, and she's their mm-hmm. mother. Hmm. And uh, her father is the, or her husband, excuse me, is the leader, the father of these, of these men, so to speak. So they're using uh, kinship bonds to form a military unit. Uh, probably the one that would be familiar to your listeners would be the centurion of Rome. Mm-hmm. And the name centurion is built on the Latin word for 100. Hmm. Um, and we think that this was uh, a very ancient form of military organization. And the Nart sagas give you almost unique insight into the underlying social uh, uh, value system that was used to pull it together and make sense out of it for their participants. So we're really close to the punchline then. So now you're talking about the, uh, the, the Roman military, and we've talked about, um, we've talked about the Alans fighting in the Roman military. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about the influences of, uh, we've talked about parallels of Nart sagas and Arthurian sagas. So now the final, the final idea here, the, the punchline is that these Alans uh, maintained power after the fall of Rome and delivered, effectively delivered the uh, core material from the Nart sagas into the European consciousness where it got mixed in and eventually came out uh, with a lot of, where the Arthurian legends came out with a whole lot of stuff going on. And f- I'll give another example. Also our pants, don't forget. And our pants, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> our pants and our chainmail. And the fact that the Narts look like proto-Arthurian knights on you, horses. You, you, have, cha- you have chainmail? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'll buy it off you. Come on. Okay. Yeah, right? Uh, yeah, and in right. fact, I think it's made of... Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, okay. um, Mithril. Adamant, Mithril. right? Yeah, adamantine. Adamantine. Well, yeah. so, so there's the punchline, the idea. And, and actually, so, so now that that's delivered uh, and we're talking about Mithril, uh, maybe I can ask you, uh, and we're talking also about synergy of, of ancient stories and the creation of new stories. Well, Mithril yes. was something uh, right. that was invented by a philologist, mm-hmm. a linguist, who's looking at ancient stories and thinking about how to make new stories. Yeah, Tolkien, so yeah. could you tell us maybe a little bit about that, what, what that's about, and, 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 and how you think uh, a Tolkien, as a philologist, uh, was inspired as, as, a, as a storyteller? Well, Tolkien um, was quite good. He does what I do, or he did what I do. Uh, and I sort of feel honored to follow in that kind mm-hmm. of tradition of, of, of intellectual uh, labor. He... Um, I was very familiar with Norse material, mm-hmm. extremely familiar with Celtic material, and he was up to date and he was beginning to, to help bring online, as we say, uh, the lore of the Steppereanians. Which really appears, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Well, they're the Rohirrim. They're the Rohirrim. The Rohirrim are kind of a blend of Norse, but hmm. uh, with the Steppereanians. Um, and these people, uh, they're hard to see. They, they assimilated quickly. They lost their languages except for Ossetian. Uh, there are a few words in English that are thought to be borrowings um, from uh, int, the ints, for example. Mm-hmm. Intish is an old English word meaning a giant, an unruly person, mm. uh, and this would be a frontiersman in Armenian. Mm. 
like a Cossack or, or, or frontiersman. Um, path is also thought to be that. There's a German word for a woman's skirt. I don't know if it's a dirndl or whatever. It's also thought to be a rainy. A few words. Uh, but, uh, and perhaps the, the, the city of Paris takes its name from a tribe called the Parisi, but they're not Celts because they have a P in the name, and hmm. Celtic uh, didn't have a P until later. Um, so uh, they blended in. They're, they're, they're hard to see hmm. because they're so close to us. Hmm. And uh, same thing with myth. Uh, we all use myth in our days. Um, I spent uh, some years uh, as a security advisor on the wars in the Caucasus with the, the Clinton administration. I found the transition from mythology to politics <laughs> to be a seamless transition. Uh, good guys, bad guys, monsters, you know, fair maidens, and all this. Um, and I think that what Tolkien was trying deliberately to do uh, and we see it in the movie, and it's, it's marvelous entertainment. We need these things. We can't live without these things, literally. Uh, but what Tolkien explicitly was, thought he was doing was creating an ideology that would rival the Aryan craziness that the Nazis were promoting. Hmm. And he was trying to launch a rival uh, mythology. And he understood that, that, in effect, both sides had to have a mythology to, be, uh, to effectively organize themselves uh, for war against Around values. And, you know, in a way, the Nazis, to speak quickly about the Nazis, they put a blight upon the entire enterprise that Tolkien pursued. I would I really pursue. love to hear you talk about this, the oh. Indo-European studies and mm -hmm. what, the, what the World War II did to that field. Mm -hmm. Well, no Indo-Europeanists thought in racial terms after probably 1870. They had already abandoned that kind of simplistic thinking mm. and were on to much more sophisticated ideas. But for some reason, the people around Hitler, Hitler himself, latched on to this outmoded already by 60 years or so idea, set of ideas, and came up with the Aryan race. You know, it's kind of nonsense. Um, the Indo-Europeans apparently did call themselves Aryon, Aryons, something like that, and apparently it just simply meant people. And it's perpetual. It's another form in the, in the Circassian name Adiga, where the D was originally an R and the G became a Y, and the so Arya, something like that. Uh, Arya, aristocrat. Uh, has it, and it's the most Arya one, uh, so on. Uh, but the message now, back, back then, the nation states were sort of new, they were emerging, they're only about 100, 150 years old, uh, trying to organize a nation state, put Germany together uh, in the 1870s, Italy together about the same time, uh, these sorts of things. Um, it served, it served the, the spirit of the time to set people against one another and to organize these nation states. The message now is entirely different. I offer courses on these things. I, I have a course capped at 250 kids. When it wasn't capped, it was 580. Wow. And what they're seeking are roots, and what the message now is, and it's just a course on Indo-European myth, what the message now is is one of common heritage. We, you know, mm -hmm. here we have a little redhead guy over here and a little dark girl over here from India and whatnot, and they go back in some way, not genetics, not all the breeding and all that. Love has its own way. But uh, it goes back as a community and a, a shared heritage is distorted and distant now as it is. 5,000 years is a long time. Mm -hmm. And they've drifted apart. So it's a new message from this field. And I, I think that... Uh, so it goes... Oh, sorry. No. It, it, it's, it has started with my generation of scholars. So it shifts from here is a, it's a divisive, we are the best and everybody else isn't, isn't on our level. We are the people who started civilizations, etc. So it shifts to... Uh, shifts its emphasis to the, uh, in studying the Indo-Europeans to um, getting to know some of our own roots and who we are. Mm -hmm. um, so, so when people 
uh, I, I'm very interested in, my, in this myself. I did a dissertation on, on mythology, of course, and, and Western myths because I wanted to see, uh, I feel like in a time where we're becoming increasingly global, we also need to be increasingly self-aware. And yeah. so as that happened, I wanted to look at, well, what are the myths that are informing Western consciousness, right? So I thought, okay, Greek, Roman, you know, the normal classical myths, the Abrahamic myths, and uh, the sciences and stuff too. But I came to, as I got deeper and deeper into it, I came to realize that there's a major missing piece. And that's Indo-European field, this study, these, this is as much of who we are, and not just on the Western side, uh, but also on the East. This is, this is uh, I, if I can steal your phrase, it plugs a hole. It plugs a hole, yeah. Uh, and our sagas plug a hole. They're, they span the, the, from the lore of Europe and the lore of India, Iran, they plug a hole in the middle. And because why? The Caucasus is right in the middle. And they connect us to them, mm-hmm. people we hadn't been able to find a common identity with until... Mm-hmm. You literally just published the book in English. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, well, I studied Farsi, and the first thing I learned was the word for brother, Beradar. I said, mm-hmm. oh, wait a minute, Beradar? I mean, that's brother? But sister, Khoakhar. I know the Kho and Ha came from Swessar. Swessor, sister, Swessor, you know? Oh, what's going on here? Oh, this is an Indo-European language. This is interesting because it seems to me like it's something that we need today, especially yeah. with... Uh, these these walls, uh, no pun intended here, being put up uh, more metaphorically speaking. Mm, Trump walls, if you will. <laughs> uh, I hope that, let's hope that stays a metaphor, right? Yeah. And and the fact is that when you do that sort of self introspection, you do that genealogical search. Mm-hmm. You better be ready for the answers, and you better be willing to accept the answers that you find, because what you're going to find is that very thing. We are all connected we We all come from a multiplicity of places Mm -hmm. around the world Mm -hmm. and you can't escape that so how can you have any kind of animosity toward this group or that group or the other group because you may very well come from this group or that group or the other group Mm -hmm. and i i i I don't mean to be overgeneralizing when I was watching the news in the 70s and 80s, especially with uh, all of the turmoil going on in the Middle East, I would look at the various peoples and go, I can't tell them apart. I can't tell one person from another. On 9-11 in Arizona, on that day, there was a man who went into a store and killed another man he said was a Muslim. He was a Sikh. Sikh. Hmm. You can't. And again. This has happened in Canada a number of times, too. And yeah. it's like. Wake up. We, uh, and I think that kind of a research well, here's a funny one. would help. So, so John, John says he looks like a Circassian. Yeah, uh, and that's what the Russians said. The Russians uh, didn't want to talk with you because they thought you were Circassian, yeah, but you well, don't have any Circassian. During my, t- <laughs> during my time uh, working for the Clintons, uh, I had to deal with a Russian carlet from the Russian embassy. And we ag- agreed to re- meet at a certain restaurant. I walked through the door. I knew what he looked like, but oddly enough, he didn't have a dossier on me. And um, I introduced myself, and he went stiff. He said, I can't talk with you. I said, why is that? You're Circassian. I said, no. We were talking about wars in the Caucasus, and the Circassians were there. And uh, I said, I'm half Italian. My mother was German and French, Cajun French, and Scots and Choctaw Indian. So I said, maybe I got the cheekbones from the Choctaw, I got the nose from the Italians, and all this. And the combination <laughs> just kind of. And eventually, you know, we got <laughs> drunk together, as is always the case with the Russians, and, and we had a good time. It became yeah. a good working relationship, yeah. one of the few between the United States and Russia at the time. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, I, I always, I'm on some genetic lists, and these people do naturally, I think they can't avoid it, it's their business, but they do tend to think simplistically and racially. 
And I said to one of the guys that runs it, I said, look at me. I'm speaking a Germanic language. I have an Italian name, and I'm allergic to horses. I said, <laughs> what hell of an Indo-European nomad would I have been? <laughs> I couldn't have gotten near a horse That's and right. go storming around the planet. You would have yeah. been the uh, god of the forge. <laughs> there you go. There you go. An heir, heir to a Prometheus, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting stuff. Now, in terms of uh, what you had shared with me in uh, email and conversation, mm-hmm. uh, John, you you have sort of captured or brought forth these stories that in the pro- were in the process of being lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us about that that aspect of of the importance of. The oral tradition, but now in your case, you you had to go back and you had to f- put together the pieces to write it down. No, I didn't do. Actually, I didn't do that. You I, did not do that. No, I didn't do that. Uh, I have done individual cases of things like that, uh, some hymns and things, mm-hmm. uh, pagan hymns that had survived the Islamicization and all. Um, I was trained as a linguist at Harvard, and I specialized. I had, I had disputes with Chomsky from the get-go, and so I couldn't really do what he was doing. I ended up doing phonetics and, and what they call phonology. So these languages are among the most complicated on Earth, and uh, one of them, Ubik, has 81 consonants, for example, and that's Whoa. pushing the envelope. Yeah. Uh, so I had an ear, and I could do it, and it was no hurdle for me to do this. And uh, so... In a way, ability sort of sucked me down this path in, in, in a very superficial, almost unthinking fashion. And when I left, uh, I, I worked with people in New Jersey. Um, there's a small community there, and I had some very good teachers, very dedicated individuals, uh, a woman and three men. And um, then I went to Vienna, my first job, then I went to uh, Canada, and there were no Circassians around. And I didn't want the languages to go dormant, so I began to translate myths. And the Russians, during the Soviet period, they would promote local nationalism enough to allow a museum or a dance troupe or a few scholars to collect folklore. They all thought this is sort of harmless stuff. Keeps the local scene sort of calm. They can't try to be a nation. They can't try to break free. That, no, no, that's forbidden. That's beyond the line. That's a red line. But within the red line, you know, you can have a kind of culture. So I was lucky. I had all these books given to me, collection, and... Uh, I had help from these people, uh, and I learned the languages well enough to extract not only just the literal meaning, but actually the sense and nuance of what they were saying as well. And some of it's impossible to say in English. You just can't do it. The verb, for example, inflects for everybody in the sentence, and it collects <coughs> particles that express the attitude of the speaker and where the thing is happening and when it, you know, how reliable it is and blah, blah, blah. And it bundles it all up into a couple of syllables, and you have to untangle this to make it a <laughs> um, So they read very differently. The whole flow, the sense of flow of the stories is different and all that. But I think what's interesting is that, particularly for Circassian, which is 2,100 pages, I translated no more than 10%. Mm. And that was enough to make a big, fat book with Princeton <laughs> University Press. Um, and... So there's another 90%, 85-90% out there for someone you know, younger who wants to take up the, the torch and, and go on with this and, and maybe find more. And there's some amazing stuff I found by sheer chance in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a, an art hero who looks just like the, the Norse Woden, and his name is actually Wadana, Wadana, 
Wodan, and Odin had a W on the front, like Wednesday, you know, at the, at the God. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lady tree. It's a kind of cosmic tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, One of my favorites. Yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful story. And it's the best depiction we have of the cosmic tree, which is always known sort of vaguely, axis mundi, the, the axle of the world. It's like one of the biggest um, motifs in world mythology. Yeah. And this, and when you read it, and, and not only the, the lady tree, but also, uh, uh, is, is the lady tree the story that the golden apples happen in? No, uh, that's no, another. That's another these story. are both stories that are very uh, towards the front of the corpus, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, these two stories about the golden apples and about the, the lady tree, it feels like you've been looking at, around the world, it feels like you've been looking at the story through an opaque piece of glass. Mm-hmm. And then you get lady tree. And then you get the golden apple stories and you feel like you're looking at it. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Well, there, there are scholars who work on the Rig Veda of ancient India, the, the great epic tradition of ancient India. And there's a line in there about the storm god, Indra. And it says, the waters were kind to Indra, and then Indra stood up. No one in that field knows what those lines mean. And there are entire articles written debating what those mean. That's right in the Nart sagas. Really? There it is, yeah. And uh, we haven't talked about this. We haven't talked about no. this one. No. Um, and uh, this is uh, uh, Pataraz, and uh, they've killed his father before he was born. So in the womb, he swears vengeance, right, which is right. a great Caucasian uh, um, ethic, ethical obligation. And when he's born, uh, they, they take him and put him like Moses in, in a basket and put him in the river, and the river washes him down out of the mountain. But he doesn't drown. He actually does. But he goes into a grave mound. He's reared in the grave mound. He stands up one day goes from a baby to an adult and stands up and grabs a big weapon hanging from a pillar in the middle of the grave mound. Now, we've exca- the Russians have excavated grave mounds. They find a huge uh, trunk, sometimes brought in from hundreds of kilometers away because there's no forest around, uh, to support the middle of the grave, uh, the chamber inside this mound. And uh, the, hanging, the weapons are sometimes hung from that. And in Valhalla, Odin has a huge tree in the middle and he hangs mm-hmm. a weapon or sticks a sword into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get this resonance in Norris and whatnot. And when he said the, water, the waters were kind, the waters were kind to Indra, they spared him. They didn't drown him. Although uh. this is not named Indra, he's now named Batrads. And he stands up. That means he's resurrected. He comes back as an adult to go out and, and he goes out and wreaks vengeance. Wow. It's a marvelous story. It's a kind of anti-Christ story. He escapes death. He, trans- he defeats the prince of death, comes back looking like a corpse, the way Christ did after he came out of the cave. It was unrecognizable. And he stipulates not salvation but doom. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> you know, and yeah. they deserve it <laughs> according to the value system that, that they have. I'm curious, John. I've asked this question of many of our guests on this program before. Why are these stories, and especially those of other languages, why are they important to us? Of what difference will it make in our lives knowing them? Well, there's a theorem in information theory that the more familiar something is, the less information it carries. Hmm. And I think in our romantic lives, we all sort of know this. You know, when you first meet the beautiful woman or whatever, you hang on every word she says. Maybe she hangs on yours, too, with any luck. And, uh, uh, you know, 20 years later, oh, yes, dear, because you've sort of heard each other Hmm. thoroughly by the time. Uh, It's one reason people get excited if they think they've seen a UFO, because the probability is very, very low. So they think it has tremendous information, maybe. Maybe it doesn't have to, but it could, right? So we need new things. It's not frivolity. It's not simply being shallow and going after some new novel experience simply for the sensation. It's a fundamental property of the universe. We need new things to acquire more information, and we seek information 
That's one of the big goals throughout life. A life without novelty and, that's to say, without new information becomes a very empty, stale life. So that's one thing that these things give us. They give us new information, and we can puzzle over them, which is what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. What in the world does this stuff really mean? They can reveal weird things about ourselves that otherwise are like the, the, the story from the Rig Veda or the axis of the world. And when, uh, they can throw light on things unexpectedly. And uh, they somehow they bring satisfaction in that regard. They make sense of things that we, we've been trying to make sense of for decades, many of us, you know, and, and to suddenly bring enough information that they plug holes in the information and suddenly the, pu- the puzzle is clear. It's no longer enigmatic. Uh, that's another thing. And then they tell us in some ways about the universals of human life and human uh, existence and our effort to make sense out of life. Mm-hmm. And at that level, at that very deep level, almost all the folktales across the planet are similar. And that's the realm of archetypes and, and deep psychology. Well, I know that uh, John Redfield, for example, in his uh, book Celestine Prophecy, talks about the fact that we each have messages for one another. And that mm-hmm. if we do not share them, we are not allowing the other person to continue to build the puzzle of their lives. And the converse is also true, that when we deny ourselves that information from the other person, for whatever reason, whatever wall you want to put up, uh, we aren't allowed to continue to build the puzzle uh, and, and somehow get a a glimpse, at the very least, of the big picture, mm-hmm. e- even if it's just for of our own lives, our own individual lives. Can, can I take that metaphor one sure, step? Sure, absolutely. Say, imagine, imagine that we've been creating this puzzle of who we are. Uh, Simplify to say in the Western world. Mm-hmm. But you know how when you're making a puzzle, somebody makes the frame and mm-hmm. the frame. It, Imagine that a bunch of scholars, uh, John included, have, have made a whole side of the frame, a whole maybe even a corner, turn in the corner, mm-hmm. okay. and everybody else is making a puzzle without the f- half the frame. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to be here talking on the radio with you and with John to, to share more about the NARTs because mm-hmm. they are a huge missing piece of the puzzle of who we are, yeah. a huge amount of the information that we need to puzzle over uh, who we've been, who we are, and who we who we will uh, maybe always be, and who we, who who we who may, may become. become. Yeah. One of the things that I found fascinating when I was talking with a gentleman about that aspect mm-hmm. of beingness, uh, you know, I asked him about our our evolution from his perspective. What are we evolving toward? Uh, you know, are, are we going to get to a point where we will finally know who? Uh, who we're going to be. And he says, no, he says, our evolutionary process is taking us towards an understanding of who we always have been. Mm-hmm. That's, and I thought, that's an interesting perspective because we barely know who we are, let alone who we're going to be. Mm-hmm. And we, we a lot of times don't go back, if you will, to try to figure out, well... So speaking of the future and who we're going to be, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you could say a little bit about... Uh, What's happened with the people who tell the stories of the Narts and, and what your book, uh, what your two volumes uh, have, have been for them? Well, they're small peoples, and uh, when we think of our own social identity on a large scale, we think in terms of millions and tens of millions, hundreds of millions. But these people think in terms of thousands or tens of thousands. And uh, there are 50 people with 50 distinct languages, three different language families, all in an area the size of Spain. Um, and they've been there for thousands of years. They've survived. But what has been come a major threat is are the powers 
that have been able to industrialize. So the very first power that ever defeated them was Russia. They fought for over 100, 101 years. Mm -hmm. And Russia defeated them because Russia was at that stage beginning, even just the most rudimentary stages of industrialization, and that was enough to vanquish traditional bravery and horsemanship and so on. Uh, so these people feel the threat of extinction as a tangible dimension of their life. Mm -hmm. And I think my, my feeling, having worked with them for decades now, is that they want a place uh, at the table of the world banquet, so to speak. They want to bring something to that table. They don't want to pass into oblivion totally unknown and without any... It would any, go against uh, their own saying, right? Yes. Yeah. If our lives are short, may our fame be great. That's a saying from the Ossetian collection. And I think that uh, there's something obscene about losing an entire population without some kind of testimony, some kind of witness to what they cared about, how they thought, how they performed. And certainly in the case in North America with the, uh, the indigenous populations is, is a, burning, a burning example as well. Um, so these people, they see these books as their voice. They see my having rendered them into a world language, English, as a way of speaking to the world mm -hmm. and conveying their ideas. Um, otherwise, you know, to, to get your hand, I get emails, can I please have a grammar of blah, blah, can I have a dictionary of blah, okay, I got a grammar, I can send it to you. Dictionary, no, I don't have one, uh, <laughs> this sort of thing. Uh, you know, I get one of these every week. Um, hmm. And uh, uh, people are beginning to realize that th there's a, uh, there was a civilization there. Uh, what particularly befell the Circassians, Ubik, and Abkhaz was, was, was very grim. The Russians killed maybe half the population during that 100 years. Uh, they wanted to relocate them. They gave them a choice, either relocate north uh, onto the plains, which they didn't want to do, or, you know, go into the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottomans took him in, and about another half died there. So 90% now of Circassians live outside the homeland. It's the largest diaspora. Many in Turkey, but there's some now here in, uh, just around Los Angeles, um, and uh, some in New Jersey. We have a few now emerging in Canada. Uh, there are communities. Uh, you mentioned uh, in Jordan, Europe. too, I think. In Jordan, yeah. yeah. Jordan has a, a big, a very vital uh, community. Um, but they're afraid they're going to assimilate. And although they're loyal, they're uh, it's one of the great values of their culture. They're loyal, and they are fierce warriors, but they don't like to fight which is an mm. interesting combo, hmm. uh, combination. And uh, they, f they, they feel that they will disappear. Uh, I have three volumes, actually, and the third volume is a little more arcane. It's all the stories in the original languages, not all the stories, but a selection of stories in the original dialects and languages with the languages all analyzed. Mm. And it's called salvage linguistics. Uh, linguists do this when they're afraid that a uh, language or group is going to go extinct. So if anyone ever wants to go back and retrieve and revive it, they can actually see how it was used. And that's something you don't get in the grammar. You get how to inflect a verb or, you know, what's the case on a noun, blah, blah. Uh, but uh, to actually say something and know, know that you say it this way and not that way, uh, you have to have text to, to see that. So that's what that was done, mm. done for. Wow. You know, I've, in my pessimistic moments, and unfortunately I've had a few uh, more so lately than, than ever before, uh, I've had to, I, I've actually put this question to my guests, and it, 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 it's a broader perspective from what I was asking you before about the stories and, and, and saving them and having them for our, our uh, a legacy for that Memory. particular group of people yeah. or the species as a whole. And the question that I put forth is based upon, and I've only been around a scant 56 years. 
Okay, so I'm I'm you're a baby. I'm just a baby. <laughs> My dad's been here for um, 85 years, wow. a little longer than me, mm-hmm. uh, and I can't believe that he doesn't feel a certain level of the similar frustrations I do, and I verbalize it more than he does. And my question to you is, do you think that humanity really has the has earned the right to continue? I'm not talking hmm. about obliteration here. I'm talking about no more babies. This is the end of the line. No more <laughs> offspring. We're done because we can't get it right because of the very thing you just explained about how one group says you either do it our way or, or you're done. And all your stories and all your myths and all your legends and all your people are going to be wiped from the face of the earth and you will never be known of in in history. Yeah, well, the the, the impulse to exterminate is a simplistic sort of primitive one uh, and it belongs to a level of political and cultural organization that is archaic in a sense. Uh, it's the way of solving a problem with some blood and some money, but <laughs> basically not basically removing the problem, not really solving mm-hmm, the problem. Mm-hmm. And we've evolved into a, a, a confusing, tension-filled, sort of polarized sort of society. But it's in that kind of a mess that you actually come to terms with problems, you actually mm. work out compromises, and you actually decide we, got, we can't give up this, but we will give up that, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of of interplay. And that's really, I think, the sign, not of decadence, but of an advanced society. Mm. Now, whether those societies in the long run prove strategically more viable on the world's stage than, than others that are more archaic and savage, let's say, uh, is yet to be seen. When I became involved in politics, um, I was shocked. It was like biker gangs. The nations were like biker <laughs> gangs with nukes or with huge, huge uh, motorcycle gang, you know, with uh, tanks instead of yeah. motorcycles. Um, so it is a kind of savage, free-for-all kind of world. Mm-hmm. There are standards that have emerged, curiously. And in some ways, I don't hear anything about these, but this is characteristic of the modern age, that there are st- things you do and don't do. And... Uh, I think President Obama drew a red line about chemical weapons in Syria, and his biggest blunder as a a president was to fail to enforce that red line. And that meant that people who did not want to adhere to those standards, uh, uh, sort of agreed patterns, Mm -hmm. saw them as alien. That's always the way it's characterized. But uh, I think it really serves the interests of their elites. The Chinese started pushing into the South China Sea, East China Sea. Uh, Russia took Crimea. Then sort of expected Eastern Ukraine to rise up and join it, which didn't happen. Uh, so uh, these are more archaic uh, styles of government, Russia, China, and, whatnot, and there are plenty of others around like this as well. Um, they're sort of the norm in some way yeah. uh, of, of the historical, uh, all the historical predecessors. We're something new, mm-hmm. uh, and I do think there's hope in that. Now, however we conceptualize that, whether we despair or, or maintain hope and whatnot, in some ways, these things are organic entities that continue on on their own accord. And maybe, you know, the Zika virus will mutate and we'll all <laughs> end up being, you know, little pinheads and be dead. You know, it's conceivable. <laughs> Something may overwhelm us that we least expect, mm-hmm. meteorite impact or whatever. Yeah. But I think we should not despair. I do think that uh, I see n- new things on the world stage. And maybe President Obama didn't understand them. Maybe the next one will. Uh, certainly, I hope it's not Trump. Um, <laughs> President President uh, uh, Rodham or, or, or the, uh, the new Clinton. Who knows? Clinton, Clinton too. Yeah. Um, and I do think that uh, the hard part of that 
is that there are people who won't respect that attitude unless you show them a very strong fist. That seems to be the situation, huh? So, yeah. so there's the fear of if you don't defend those red lines or mm-hmm. if you get one of those presidents in there that doesn't want it to... Yeah, that's an intense situation. Yeah. Well, look, China backed off on the East China Sea because Abe turns around and says, I'm going to revise the Constitution and we're going to have offensive forces. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, so that was in Japan, yeah. Yeah, and now right. China doesn't make any claims in the East China Sea. They're focusing on weaker states like the Philippines and Indonesia. Right. And this Duarte, the Duarte, the, the whatever his name is, the, this, the wild man that's running the Philippines. Oh, right. Now. They just declared that he's separated from the United States. Yeah, yeah, and he's gone up and paid a visit to China because he's weak, basically. Mm. Mm. And... Well, that's he's going to try to spin that so he looks strong, but no, he's weak. He's yeah. like a kitten in a lion's den. Well, with all these things happening, I think that it is important to keep in mind that there is still hope, that there is still a possibility. And like we, what you were saying, out of chaos may come uh, some sem- semblance of order. Some kind uh, of compromise. From some corner, some compromise, some like you say, exactly. Mm-hmm. And maybe instead of competing, we'll start to, co- we'll start to cooperate mm-hmm. uh, in, in such a way. And, well, I uh, see it in my young classes. I mean, the people see a kind of commonality that I think would not have been true, say, my generation. I'm yeah. 71. And uh, hmm. so I, I think that... Uh, Shared identity some, or something. Something new is emerging. Yeah, yeah, something new is emerging. And part of it is is the medium, the media and all. We can actually see each other now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we know that so-and-so uh, can cry, can show despair, can you know show love and hope and whatnot. Yeah. All, we, we, the triggers that govern human interaction and human passions are now available across the entire planet so as, as though there's no more geography yeah well we had an interview with a, a gal mm. from india and mm-hmm. she Maravi. was on skype yeah. and and it was incredible to be able to watch her and see her and mm-hmm. communicate and with have her a dialogue and, and have a dialogue and, and that's, it was yeah. great it was mm-hmm. fabulous so yeah mm-hmm. i've interviewed people from uh, the uk and from ireland uh, i think uh, i had one from canada Mm-hmm. Uh, in different places around the world, it's just it's extraordinary the the capabilities that we have now mm-hmm. to not only stay connected, mm-hmm. but to begin to see the commonalities that we have. Let me check one. I know we're running short on time. There's one major thing I want to ask you about, John, mm-hmm. and that is uh, the the uh, Indo-Europeans mm-hmm. seem to have been early masters of travel. What do you see? How do you see? How do you see their uh, uh, them as travelers influencing them as storytellers? Yeah. Okay. Um, you, you triggered they, the question because of the level of communication. <laughs> they were early, early yeah. on the high-level communication scene. Yeah. Well, let me just say one thing before that, that, that our strength is our medium, our openness. And mm. those who don't like that kind of world want a more traditional pattern, like Russia, like China. Their target will be that system. And the target will be studios like this. And I think we have to be more vigilant. There was a big hack that disrupted a mm-hmm. whole bunch of big servers and all that. Yeah. That's the kind of thing we're going to see more and more of that because of that, that is what they have to remove if they're going to be on an equal footing with us. Mm. And they don't want to be on an equal footing. I mean, they, want to be on, they don't want to be at a disadvantage, but they are now. And yeah. I think they're beginning to understand that and they're going for what makes us really work, and that's mm. the media. Uh, okay, now, when the Indo-Europeans expanded... They, they began to differentiate, losing touch with their huge area. And as far as we can tell, each branch that emerged uh, also contains distinctive non-Indo-European words that nevertheless are confined to that particular branch. So um, apparently they ran into other people. They intermarried, they interbred. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Indo-European that came out was mixed. 
And so, in a way, they must have picked up more stories and more tales and one thing and another. So I would think that as nomads and expansive people that went out, that they would have enriched their repertoire mm-hmm. and perhaps brought on gods and goddesses and, and, and heroes and, and great monsters and whatnot that originally started somewhere else. Um, and we have some clear instances from later period, like the Greeks borrowing something from the uh, Middle East and whatnot. Uh, it's very hard to uh, see and identify anything like that in the very oldest period right. because it's very hard to distinguish common, tightly knit Indo-European mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Let me give you one example, though, one very, very funny thing. So um, in Norse, when Thor fights Hrungnir, the great giant, a piece of whetstone gets stuck in his forehead and it stays there. It's called, it looks like a crescent moon. That's in Thor's forehead? Thor's forehead, yeah, okay. yeah. Thor has that All stuck right. in his forehead. And then, if you go to Ireland, again, uh, you have uh, a warrior's moon, uh, Luan Leich, it's called, and that was a mark on Cúchlán, Um and also there was a mark on Diarmid. Uh, you get a, a fellow in uh, the Abaz and the Art Sagas, also has a mark on his forehead. Uh, David Cortum of Vanderbilt University does uh, petroglyph studies out in northwestern Mongolia. There are petroglyphs of riders with crescent moons over their heads. And you get to Japan. Yeah, I was going to ask. And you get to the samurai armor, and you go to the helmet, and there's a crescent moon on the Mm -hmm. forehead. Now, why in the world a warrior should wear a crescent moon? Well, there's Adif, the story of the crescent moon lady in the night Mm -hmm, sagas, and mm -hmm. maybe she's lighting the way. Maybe it's a guide on a dark night or Mm. something like that. Um, but that strikes me as something that was probably universal across Eurasia and something maybe the Indo-Europeans picked up somewhere. Interesting, and interesting. the ancestors, the Japanese did so too. And, or maybe they did it from the Indo-Europeans. But uh, that's a commonality that spans the entire uh, supercontinent, so to speak. And so I think that uh, maybe that's one that we can identify yeah. as having, having been uh, just generally kicking around in Eurasia and Indo-Europeans picked it up along with some other people. One thing I had found really interesting when I was traveling through Jordan, I went to Petra. And in Petra, you know, these, these people uh, that built Petra uh, were travelers and traders, and they traded all over, uh, all over uh, I think, all the way down into the Silk Road. And um, they started to actually, they, if you look at what they built, they, you see multiple gods from multiple traditions that you'd recognize. And it clicked for me, wait a minute. Just like you're saying with the internet, with, with media, you can actually see people on the other side of the world. Who were the first people that did that? The travelers. The people that broke horses first and bridled horses first probably and made first, wheels. Yeah, probably the first people that did that were the Indo-Europeans. And so the Indo-Europeans, yeah. it's like, it must have been like the first internet. Yeah, they the would have been the first people that have been like, hey, these guys eat their fathers, mm-hmm. but these guys burn their fathers. And they would have been the, because f- otherwise you only know your neighbor and you always yeah. are interacting with your yeah. neighbor. You know yeah. your neighbor. Na- but yeah. to actually go several, you know, to make distance and mm-hmm. see how different it is here and there. The, the first people to uh, be in boats and, and, and bridle horses must have been some of the first syncretists, some of the early comparative mythologists, some of the early uh, storytellers who were weaving together these stories into uh, uh, more uh, combined stories. Well, uh, I'll give you an example of that. I did a study of the war band in, in Ireland, and that's Finn and the Fenians. Uh, Finn McCool and the Finians. And there's a point at which the High King of Ireland makes him into the King of the Finians. And what's interesting about his war band is that they, they do not have horses. They're running around on foot all the time. And so 
my theory was that, in effect, this is how the Indo-Europeans came to live with the people that they found when they moved into Europe. They elevated them to a kind of aristocracy, but they had their own particular role. And in this case, they were the hunters. They brought in the wild meat, and, and they, they would serve to defend the realm and all that. Uh, the Indo-Europeans did their, did their cattle. Maybe they also had people who were doing the, the fields and that kind of thing as well. Uh, so they had an accommodation. They had a, a symbiosis uh, with those. However, and the term Arya, Aryon, whatever, is always a word for aristocrat. It's never a word for an ethnic group. Right. The only place you find it for an ethnic group, and it just meant people. And who are you? with people, you know. And, and so you get out into the steppes, go east, and they must have encountered other nomads or people with similar herding te- uh, economies and saw them as economic rivals. Hmm. And then Arya, be- Aryan becomes in ethnic terms, and an Arya or non-Aryan becomes the name of the enemy. And it's hmm. the only place where that happened, and it must have been due to the peculiar nature of the environment. In other words, it had comp- competitors in it, and they couldn't adjust. They couldn't learn to live with each other. So that seems to be one of the biggest problems I see is that people do not truly know the definition of terms that they are using. <laughs> and they throw them out there thinking they know what they mean. Because when I think of the definition you've given of Aryan, mm-hmm. and I think of World War II, and I think of the Third Reich, and I think of that whole uh, 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 process that they went mm-hmm. through to promote the Aryan race, yeah. it wasn't a race. You don't even know what you're talking about. And right. how do we know that? How many How many of you people They're really... They're selling myth. Well, how many of you people really did your genealogy... How do you know that some of you don't have Jewish blood in you, too, mm-hmm. or whatever other mm-hmm. blood they didn't mm-hmm. cotton to or didn't care for? Mm-hmm. That's so one of the things that is so perplexing to me. And notice how often it's used, or that mistake, yeah. is in the context of looking down on somebody else. Yes. And so I wanted to ask, were you suggesting that, that the there was almost a class system of those who were on the horses and, and those who weren't? Like well, I think they were distinct. I think they had distinct domains of responsibility okay. and perhaps had separate feasts or even lived in different areas. Uh, clearly, Finn McCool and his followers live in the forest, mm-hmm. and they hunt. That's, that's their, their economy. And um, they're also great warriors as well, um, but they never get on a horse. There's one tale in which they get on a horse, and then they're giants, and the horses are, you know... And staying on the horse is a really um, honorable thing for the Nards, right? Like, it's not... It's, it's just like... It's oh, yeah, horses, you have to be a good rider. You, you know, have to... And, and, and so... I know there's that story of Sherdon having to walk behind the horses, mm-hmm. and there's also a story of Lancelot of the cart, mm-hmm. where it's there's some his pride is not treated very. It's not good for his pride that he has to be on the cart mm-hmm. instead of on a horse. There may have been some ranking. I mean, uh, there's good, good evidence that the Indo-Europeans had something like a caste system. Yeah, and uh, there might be some great hierarchical aspects to staying mm-hmm. on the horse. I think just in a general context of physical well-being staying on the horse is a good thing (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well it's expensive a horse is expensive uh, and it reflected a certain access to resources and and, And we see that with the knights of europe that's why i'm asking i'm looking to see is there a parallel with this type of uh, elitism of being on the horse Mm -hmm. uh, above the others well the word for knight in german is a rider ritter Hmm. And so, you know, just the oh, writer. There it yeah. is, straightforward. Like that. Hmm. But you, it, you can't be faulted for not knowing these things because these are contributions that my, I've made myself to the field. <laughs> so I've given the etymology for Aryo, Aryan. I've given the etymology for Amazon, for example. It's a Circassian word. It doesn't have anything to do with the Greek uh, and so forth. So, you know, 
eventually it takes a while for these things to percolate out into the world at large. Will is certainly helping with this. And uh, maybe one day uh, I'll live, I live another 20 years like the way circassians do. Hey, I'll see uh, <laughs> everyone sort of knows this thing, you know. That, uh, we'll keep a good thought. <laughs> I, and I mean, we, we in this country, especially in marketing, we seem to make that mistake when we export our products to other countries. I know that the biggest faux pas are made uh, that we hear about are, are sending some of our products to China. And they keep the same brand name that means something. Something that you, interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, maybe you should change the name when uh-huh. you're exporting to China <laughs> or to, you know, whatever other countries that you're exporting to. Very interesting. John Calaruso, I want to thank you so much for taking so much time to share with us. This has been fascinating. Well, thank you, Richard. Glad to be here. And uh, uh, I have, uh, this program is normally more spiritual and metaphysical in nature, but I think that we've kind of covered a lot of that base here on this program today. And to that end, I have three final questions for you. The first one is, who is John Calaruso? No, John Calaruso is a theoretical physicist whose scholarship was taken away by his advisor to give to, so that he could give it to his nephew. And so I ended up taking two degrees in philosophy, which puts uh, <laughs> Will and I sort of in the same club. Well, he's much better at it than I am. And I took ancient Greek. And, you know, it turned out because I translated between my grandmother and my mother, I had three speech areas. And they found that I was a polyglot. And it just slid on from there. And... Um, what I've always tried to do is when something goes against my plans, I try to readjust my plans and make something good of it, if it's possible. Mm-hmm. And I never thought I'd end up doing mythology, but here I am. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? I want the world to uh, enjoy the material. I think it's fun. I think it's beautiful. I think it's evocative and powerful. I want them to feel that and know that material. I want them to appreciate the, the people who, who gave it to them. And I'm just the conduit for this. And, and the people, Circassians, the Ossetians, the Ubukhabkhaz, Abaza people, they really deserve credit. I have a volume of Chechen stuff, too. I just haven't had a chance to get to it. Um, so I think that this is a, an entire zone of the world that's been suppressed and sort of forgotten and hidden for political reasons. Uh, I think uh, uh, I want some light to shine on that. Well, and I know that we will have a link at the Mythosophia mm-hmm. website mm-hmm. to John and, and in his information. And with some additional resources there for uh, that you might find some more yeah. things on this. Yeah. Final yeah. question. Mm-hmm. What is your life's purpose? Hmm. <laughs> it seems to have been to somehow um, bring these people out of the darkness and to give their voice to the world in some way. It's the last thing I would have expected, but that seems to have been my life's purpose. I didn't plan it that way. <laughs> And I think most lives don't go according to plan. Uh, but it seems that there was uh, something good that came out of it anyway. Well, hmm. d- Professor John Calaruso, again, I thank you so much for your time and sharing with us here in the studio. It's It's been fantastic. Thank you. I hope we get a chance to do it again in the near future. Uh, it would be nice. Well, I want to thank you for uh, joining us again here on the program. This Always has wonderful. been fun. And I look forward to our next uh, get-together, hopefully in studio again. And uh, maybe, who knows, maybe we'll do another one down at Relativity Studios. Will be fun. Fantastic. I'm Richard Dugan. This has been Tell Me Your Story, the Myth of Sophia series, exploring the depths of myth and wisdom. I'm Richard Dugan along with Will Lynn. 
Again, my thanks to Dr. John uh, Calaruso. And we encourage you to uh, go to richarddugan.com, the radio show's page, and listen to the full interview. If you're just listening to the radio broadcast, there's a whole lot more. You're going to miss it if you don't go to the radio show's page and uh, click on the interview with uh, Dr. John Calaruso regarding Mythosophia, again, exploring the depths of myth and wisdom. Until next time, love to law.